You know, none of us do what we do for praise or recognition, but you know, part of grace orientation is being thankful and being thankful to those who serve us. And I appreciate John and Shaley coming and spending this whole weekend with us. And I think we ought to give them a real big hand. And I know that all of you have enjoyed the tremendous meals that have been prepared. And I think we owe Dave and Kim great big thank you. And today is my dear lady's birthday, and I wouldn't be here without her, so I would like to be She has literally saved my life in ways that I will never attempt to explain to anyone, but uh, I know that I would not be here without her faithfulness. Just a couple of things before we get into class. Um, I would encourage you gentlemen, if you're not familiar with the website, Art of Manliness. The Art of Manliness. I would encourage you to get on it, uh, look it up every once in a while. Uh, I just have before me, because we were dealing with the topic of courage yesterday, nine ways to become more courageous. Uh, it's not a Christian website, uh, but it does present a lot of very, very valuable information. Um, I mean, it shows you everything from uh, how to defend yourself in a fight to how to roll your sleeves up properly, uh, how to dress properly for every occasion. And uh, I go to the website quite often. Uh, Brett uh, and Kate McKay run the site, and I'm sure that it would be valuable for you to look it up. I've had a lot of, uh, well, I say a lot, quite a few young men that have come to me and asked me, should I join the military? I'm going to read you a letter from a former Special Forces warrior. Why nobody wants to join the military? Grab a coffee. Recruitment numbers are way down. Sign-on bonuses are at an all-time high. The government has no problem recklessly spending money on the military. So what is the problem? I'll tell you, he says. Number one, we have no faith in the administrative state. Come on, this one really is not hard to figure out. Most combat arms troops generally come from right-wing or conservative backgrounds. You've been spending the last four to six years dragging police and military through the mud. We're not interested in joining you. You've weaponized the DOJ, the ATF, the FBI, the CIA, and God knows what else. It's no mystery that they're being specifically used to target conservatives. Do you really expect a rural conservative to join a combat arms mission when you're telling them that they are terrorists and extremists? Point number two, a woke military. I can't believe this one even needs to be mentioned, but isn't it obvious? Like it or not, the military is an environment of alpha males who are being trained to kill human beings. The political token of the woke culture has no place in military ranks. War is a deadly environment and soldiers need to be focused on their job, not your made up Marxist bullcrap. I'm being polite. <laughs> Don't even mention soldiers being kicked out over the coof poke. Get out of here with your cowardly BS. Point three. 
20 years of lies will make you wise. Some of us have been there and bought the t-shirt. You know that the government is willing to lie to get their way. They don't care who they hurt. They don't care who dies. As long as those military industrial complex checks are wet, they're good. To make it even worse, we know Dick Cheney lied about WMDs. He lives a comfortable life outside of a prison cell while our troops live on the streets. Experience is the greatest teacher, so obviously, why would a young person with half a brain sign up for that? Point four, the people who are currently serving are treated like second-rate citizens. I mean, why would you join the military if you knew the answer to inflation was to go on food stamps? That's what our government told our soldiers to do. That's not a very comforting pros prospect, is it? Also, knowing you're going to be subjected to woke cri critical race theory inclusiveness and no telling what else left us politically driven training is enough to make anyone run the other way. Point five, you're not worth dying for. Think about it. Society has spent the last four to six years telling us how bad America is, how bad the military is, how bad law enforcement members are, and how, far, how unfair life is in our country. We have been told that our masculinity is toxic and that we are racist. Society is sitting on their butts and have zero work ethic. There's a lot of great jobs out there that pay better than the military and they don't subject you to the loss of life and limb over half of society who wants you dead because you are who you are and because of your political identity. Point six, they don't want to fight Americans. Yep, I said it. The writing is on the wall. Many areas are already starting to peacefully balkanize, if only in the logistical sense of banking goods and services. It's happening geographically too. Just look at the mass exodus from California. Depression in our youth is at an all-time high. They feel defeated and downtrodden. They feel that society doesn't support them. All they have is their family and friends for support. They aren't dumb either. Gen Zs are very well educated and they see the turmoil that our government is causing. The God honest truth is that Gen Z, Generation Z, is more afraid of our government than anyone else in the world. Why would they wear your uniform when you support disarming us? Why in the world would they risk their lives for you? Point seven, troops from the last 20 years of war are parents now. What do you think we're telling our kids? You're insane if you think that we're recommending to our kids that they sign up for the endless wars that you keep pushing. By the way, isn't it interesting, and this is an aside, this is not what he wrote. Isn't it interesting that the uh, left was screaming when Trump got elected that he was gonna get us into World War III, and now the left are cheering on Biden as he gets us into World War III. And by the way, another aside, we could be on the brink of a nuclear holocaust. We're closer to it than we've ever been in our history. Last point, point eight. We are tired of endless wars. I don't think Gen Z is comprised of cowards. I think they're smart enough to realize what they're signing up for. They would rather take their chances with the thousands of uh, great war on terror veterans in the streets of America if we're invaded. Invasion is the only way you're going to get a lot of them to be willing to take up arms, in which case, they have thousands of capable great war on terror vets to help them survive. Don't worry, we'll find the equipment. While you all are playing drag, we're going to defend our country. Uh, 
and I believe that's probably exactly what's going to happen. Let's go before the throne of grace and ask God's blessing on this marvelous day. We have the glorious opportunity to stand in the presence of the King of Kings. We have the glorious opportunity to go out into the world and represent him as members of the royal family. And today is an opportunity for us to sharpen our swords. So let's do it. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we gather together this morning, how we pray that we will just humble ourselves in the presence of your glory. Uh, we ask, Heavenly Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ will be the central focus as we open your word. Help us to be entranced with his beauty, with his power, with his might. And Father, the thought is always on my mind, as you know, that sitting before me are people with needs that only you can meet. There are people that are carrying burdens. There are people who have wounded hearts. Behind uh, smiles and good morning greetings, uh, there may be great burdens and great sorrows. Father, you know all things. And therefore, my prayer is that you will lead me, whether from what is prepared or in an aside that you may lead me into, May your word and may your grace and your mercy meet the needs that are present here this morning. Bless us with your presence. Fill us with your power. Send us forth in the might of our faith to fulfill the purpose for which you have brought us into the world at this time. And we will give you the thanks and the praise and the honor forever and ever for what you accomplish in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to go into study six, Uriah and David. The contrast here is faithful love versus selfish lust. You can't study the life of David without seeing a man of great contrast. David illustrates for us all, I think, that we are oftentimes our own worst enemy. Uh, David at his best was the best of the best. David at his worst, was the worst of the worst. My father used to have a saying, and when people would uh, either attack him verbally, which they never did in his presence, for obvious reasons, he would say, I'm as good as the best, I'm as bad as the worst. And sometimes he would add to that, here's to you as good as you are, and here's to me as bad as I am, but as good as you are and as bad as I am, I'm as good as you are as bad as I am. <laughs> Let's turn to Psalm 105. And as I mentioned at the beginning, the purpose in looking at these psalms is to see that the topic we're studying was on the mind of David. I'm only giving you one example of each case. But if you take the topic, for example, of faithful love, or yesterday as we studied courage, or humility, or loyalty, and look through the Psalms, you will find that these things were on David's mind constantly. When we talk about faithful love, and we talk about loyalty and the other characteristics that we've talked about, we're talking about the character of Jesus Christ. All of these things are seen in their fullest and their most perfect shape, form, reflection, evidence in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
When he said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God, he was talking not only of the cleansing that comes at the moment of our salvation. You remember in the upper room, Jesus reminded the disciples that those who are bathed only need to wash. The bathing, of course, was analogous to salvation by grace through faith. The foot washing is analogous to confession of sin. People often ask me, why don't I pause for a time of confession of sin before every Bible class? We used to do that. I'm sure many of you uh, remember those days. It's your personal responsibility. It's not my responsibility to change your diaper. You have a responsibility to come in here prepared. You have to take personal responsibility for your spiritual condition. If you have to be reminded before every Bible class, then you're being treated really like an infant and not like an adult. So we, we take that time and I certainly always use that time uh, as we're preparing to ask that God will wash and cleanse and equip and prepare me to communicate and we need to do that to receive the word as well. Let's just touch on a few things here in Psalm 105. Looking at the first five verses, oh, give thanks to the Lord. You know, one of the evidences of spiritual maturity is gratitude. We're going to touch on that in our next study. Being thankful and knowing what to be thankful for and being able to name the things that you're thankful for. And with thankfulness comes joy. I see a lot of Christians, as my old uh, pastor that led me to Christ used to say, some Christians have a look on their face like they could eat oats out of a gas pipe. That may be hard for you to figure. Uh, you know, if you think of trying to eat oats, they're dry, right? You've got to chomp, and if you're sucking on a gas pipe, it's not going to work. Another analogy is some Christians look like they were weaned on a sour pickle. They're always miserable. The look on their face is a look of misery. They're always downcast. It's almost like, uh, who was it, Pigpen in the peanut story that came along and he always had the flies buzzing around his head. It's like they've got flies buzzing around their head. They're just, they're not grateful people. They're not thankful people. They're not joyful people. I do understand that life can be painful. I do understand that we can be broken. I understand that we can have weariness and a heavy heart. But God never intended anyone to live every day of their life down in the dumps. He intended us to be thankful, and so David gives thanks to the Lord. Believe me, however hard life has been for you, it hasn't been anything like the life of David. Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing psalms to him. We just did that. What great songs. I wanted to holler out yee-haw during that one. I'm going to sing, sing, sing. Talk of all his wondrous works. When's the last time in a conversation you ever brought up the wonderful works of God? We should be doing that. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes ask someone when you see a friend or family member or whatever, what's God doing in your life? And you'll notice sometimes that they go, uh, what would you say today? What's God doing in your life? Is he at work? Can you see it? We should be able to talk about the wonderful works. 
of the Lord. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Uh, is this important? Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. What are we seeking in our daily life? Are we really seeking him? Remember his marvelous works. This is the second time he mentioned it, which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. I'm not going to read the entire psalm for you, but skip down to verse 17. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. We just talked about the guy climbing the mountain, right? Weary, exhausted, climbing that steep terrain until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Reflect for a while on the life of Joseph. Think of what it was like for him to be the outcast in his own family, hated by his brothers, ultimately almost brought to the point of murder, thrown into a pit. They were going to leave him to die there until the Ishmaelites came along, and then they sold him into slavery. So he goes from the pit down to Potiphar and ends up a slave in Potiphar's house, and what does he do? He's like a cork that you push underwater, and the minute you let go, it just keeps popping back up. Now he's the head of Potiphar's house. Then Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. He's too strong for that. He's too wise for that. He's not going to sell himself cheap. He's not going to throw away the opportunities that God has given him uh, in blessing him and raising him up to that position. And so like vicious uh, women rejected can do, men also, uh, she begins to slander, accuse, and malign him. And as I said yesterday, when you're falsely accused, you have no defense. There is no defense against false accusation. You know, like the question that you ask men, when, when did you stop beating your wife? You know, how do you answer that? The more urgent, the more emphatic that you try to defend yourself, the more convinced everyone is that uh, you're guilty. So the best thing is silence, and that's what he did. He spoke nothing at all. He was thrown in prison. He was left in prison. He became the head of the prison. The guy was a cork. Be a cork. Life will push you down. The enemy will push you down. Just keep popping back up to the top. Uh, there's nothing, by the way, that the enemy hates more than when you give thanks, when you give praise, and when you sing. Do you ever sing praises to God on your own? Some people never do. Well, I just don't sing. Well, if you don't have a song in your heart, I guess there's no reason to have one on your lips, is there? God is glorified. Satan is terrified when we sing. I told you a little bit about some of the ordeals that Nan and I went through in Australia. And by the way, you know only a sliver. I could go on and on. <coughs> but at the point that it got to its worst, <coughs> I took down a songbook off the shelf and I opened it up and we sat down on the couch and we started singing and it was just like the power of Satan was broken. He hates it when we sing. 
He hates it when we're joyful. He hates it when we're pleasant. I have to work on that one. <laughs> Fortunately, God gave me a wife that is most pleasant. And she is a great balance to me because uh, she's sweet and I'm sour. <laughs> Sometimes. Salty. Say what? I'm as good as you are and as bad as whatever. Second Samuel chapter 11. Second Samuel chapter 11 is a story and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I want to really deal with uh, the, sec the, the next study. I have to try to squeeze two into one here. 2 Samuel 11. Well, I'm in 1 Samuel. No wonder I'm getting, not getting the right story here. <coughs> Pardon me. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to war that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. There's a reason that God emphasizes certain things. It's the time that kings go to war and David remained at Jerusalem. Uh, Dan brought up some interesting facts about the fact that uh, David uh, may have been in some way related to the king of Ammon. Uh, I'll have to check that out. It's a very interesting possibility and topic. Maybe explains why he didn't go, but the point is he remained in Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and he walked on the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman and someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her and she came and he lay with her for she was cleansed from her impurity and she remained uh, returned to her house. And the woman conceived and she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Let's just touch on a few of the highlights of this very familiar story. David's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Choosing to be in the wrong place, being out of the will of God, being in a wrong relationship, whatever it may be, there's no blessing that can come from it. It's not only doing what you're supposed to do, it's doing what you're supposed to do where God has called you to do it. You can be doing the right thing in the wrong place and it's going to be wrong. You can be in the right place doing the wrong thing and it's going to be wrong. It has to be the right thing at the right place and at the right time. In other words, being in step with the plan and the purpose of God. So he's in the wrong place and then notice he arises with the ending of the day. The day is far gone. Who is he? He's the king. What did Samuel give to the people when he anointed Saul? He gave them a book of instructions for those in positions of leadership. David would have had that book. And here he is sleeping away his time. By the way, we've got officials in the United States of America right now that are being very highly paid and they don't work a day of their life. They do no work. 
They show up to speak to a crowd or to get on television or to do an interview, and that's about all they do. It's a huge responsibility. To be the pastor of a church is a huge responsibility. To be the husband of a wife is an awesome responsibility. The calling is much greater than any of us will ever attain. If we're not working hard to be what we ought to be, if we're not checking ourselves and evaluating ourselves according to the standards set forth in the Word of God, just because we've been married for many, many years doesn't mean it's time now for me to coast. Every day I should be working at being a better husband to my wife. To be a wife is an awesome responsibility. Every day a wife should be checking herself. I mean, the fact that I married one that's almost perfect doesn't relieve her of the responsibility. She has to keep checking herself. Husbands need to remind wives in grace and love. Wives need to remind husbands in grace and love. We have to keep getting better. We have to be a better example. We have to let our lives speak to our children, to our grandchildren, to those who are around us. The responsibility never ends. So here's David, slack in discipline, slack in the duties of the palace. And then he comes out on the roof, and this is not hard to understand if you go to Pakistan, if you go to India, if you live in a two or three story building or even a higher apartment, the roofs are flat and you walk over and you look down, you look down in the street and the people who are living in more modest homes, small little uh, homes, they have a closed in courtyard, that's usually where they take their baths. And so it's, you know, this would be something that would happen at any time almost of any day. My question is, did David get up at that time hoping to catch a view of something he'd seen before? It's an interesting question. We're not told. He sees Bathsheba. There she is bathing. As I say, it would be a common occurrence living in those countries. What did he have to do? Turn and walk away. Just turn and walk away, but he didn't. Once he saw her, what did he do? I want you to notice some words here. The woman was very beautiful to behold. David was beholding. In other words, lingering. In other words, looking, evaluating, examining this woman. And then notice he takes the next step. He sent and inquired, who is this? He may have already known. I mean, it's the next door neighbor, right? But he sent and inquired, meaning that he goes to people to ask the question, who is this? For what purpose? As they identify her, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, who both, by the way, were members of his mighty men. The mighty men of David included the father and the husband of Bathsheba. Your trusted men, people who not only love you, people who look up to you, the mighty men of David, as mighty as they were, the top three excelled above all the others, and the top three looked at David as the example of what a warrior ought to be. 
David outshone them all. David was the hero of the nation. And these men looked to him. These men loved him. These men admired him. These men would lay down their lives in a moment for him. As the special forces soldier that I just quoted wrote, who would want to go and die for people that are not worth dying for? But they would die for David. And then after beholding, and then after inquiring, and then after identifying, David sent messengers and took her, Lakak. I don't get into the original a whole lot. I just study it and bring it to you in common vernacular. But the word here is a word that has a kind of a violent, forceful idea behind it. He sent people and took her. In other words, the king demands your presence. You don't turn that down. You don't say, I'm busy. You don't say, I haven't got time. He sent and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, and she was cleansed from her impurity. Probably the bath was her cleansing herself after her menstrual period. Right? And now the deed is done, and what happens? She sends to him, and says, I'm pregnant. Would you hold your place here and turn with me to the book of James? In the little book of James, and I can't help but think that maybe James had this story in mind as he wrote this, inspired by the Holy Spirit. James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Did David endure? No. He fell headlong into it. For when he has been proved, the idea here is the testing of, and the purifying of gold, tested for the purpose of approval. He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those that love him. How long does that proving process last? Lasts all your life. We are being tested every day. Every day, there is a test. Every day we wake up, we're being graded. Every day, we are either approved or disapproved. And not just day, but moment by moment. The crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. How do we prove we love Him? We endure temptation. We overcome temptation. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. By the way, the word to tempt here and the word to test is one and the same. Why is that? Because every time you're tempted, your faith is being tested. Every time God tests you, Satan is going to tempt you. The two always go together. They're two sides of the same coin. As we saw with Joseph tested again and again and again, refined and purified and approved and demonstrating his love for the Lord and for the life that he had because of the plan of God. God cannot be tempted by evil, neither does he tempt anyone. Satan tempts you, God tests you. Remember when God tested Abraham? Take now your son, your only son, even Isaac, whom you love, Take him to a mountain that I will show you and offer him there to me. 
What did Abraham do? Abraham rose early in the morning. Abraham was an old man. Isaac could have overpowered him easily. It wasn't just the obedience of Abraham that reflected God the Father. It was the submission and surrender of Isaac who reflected the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. Keep thinking of David here. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. The word entice that James uses here is a word that means to bait a hook. What happens when the fish sees that baited hook? He doesn't see the hook. He sees the bait. It looks good. It looks desirable. It looks like something that I want to devour. And so he grabs the bait and he gets the hook. That is temptation. When he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed, then when desire has conceived, Bathsheba, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death, Uriah. Isn't it an amazing parallel? Notice the process. Number one, tempted. Number two, drawn away. Number three, enticed. Number four, desire. Number five, conception. Number six, birth. Number seven, death. The full completion that begins with the temptation. So back to 2 Samuel 11, you remember the story that David sends for Uriah. Verse 8 of 2 Samuel 11, David, David well, let's uh, start at verse 6. David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people are doing, how the war is prospering. He could care less. He's got his mind on something else. Now David has gone from lust and adultery to deception. His character, by the way, is being eroded. You can always tell. I know this from experience. I'm sure you know this from experience. You can always tell when you're on the wrong path because it begins eating away at your soul. Your joy is gone. Your stability is gone. Your competence in life is gone. And the longer we stay on the wrong path, the greater the sin eats away at our soul and our capabilities, our possibilities, our stability just begins, we're like a car that's out of control. We're, we're all over the place. You know, we enjoy the sin, we get pleasure from the sin, but it eats away at our conscience when we're not getting the enjoyment. And so we're grabbing for the enjoyment, the, the fulfillment, the pleasure, whatever it might be, and then we're losing the ability to have true and genuine joy. And life becomes just a roller coaster ride from being down in the dumps to up and exhilarated again down in the dumps and so on and so forth. And here's David and it's beginning to eat away at his soul and his character, which it has been so crystal clear, so magnificent, 
such a tremendous servant of God, such a tremendous example of what a man ought to be, begins to unravel. David said to Uriah, verse 8, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house. A gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Sterling character. Sterling qualities. Loyalty. Faithfulness. He'd already demonstrated his courage again and again and again. A man with a conscience, a man with a backbone, a man with a goal that he set before himself. I am a warrior of the greatest king that anyone could serve and I will not for even a moment lose my honor and my integrity and take pleasure while my brothers are on the battlefield. I told you yesterday that the love that David and Jonathan shared as David said in his eulogy to Jonathan, your love was better than the love of women. Why? Because only brothers in arms, only two men who have gone through battles together, only two men who have slept in the foxhole together, or two men maybe who have never been in the military but are true brothers, two men that would die for each other. That relationship, that fulfillment cannot be had with a woman. It just can't. You can only have that with another man. Fortunate is the man that has brothers in arms. It's what all of us should be to each other. Every single one of us should have the mind of Uriah and say, I want to be the kind of man that my brother can rely on. I want to be the kind of man who will pick him up when he's wounded on the battlefield. I have talked to so many guys on the battlefield. Uh, I, I remember a Green Beret breaking down. I was with Nick Bacon, and we were talking to a friend of his who had been through Vietnam, and the guy breaking down and just crying like a baby. You know why? He and his friend had gone behind enemy lines. They were running. His friend got shot. He picks his friend up, puts him on his shoulder, and is trying to flee, carrying his friend. And because he's carrying his friend, the enemy are catching up to him. His friend begged him, put me down and put a bullet in my head. And he did it. And when I think of him and I think of his broken heart, and he lived with this every day, he and this guy were closer than brothers. But you know what? He did the right thing. He absolutely did the right thing. And I tried to counsel him on that, and I believe that he came to a saving knowledge of Christ that night. I could go on and on about Uriah, but the whole point is he sleeps in the barracks. They told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house. And David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? David's now frantic. You know, when you sin and you have to cover the sin up and you have to start deceiving because of the sin, it starts destroying every relationship that you have. 
Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, wait here today and also tomorrow, and I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. He's home at least three days. Doesn't go to see his wife, doesn't go home. Sleeps in the barracks. David's hoping that Uriah will be worn down and give in, and Uriah's too strong for him. So the next morning, he sends Uriah back to the battle, and you remember the rest of the story. He tells Joab to put Uriah at the front of the battle, withdraw from him, let him die. Now David has stooped to murder. Now he's going to have to not only cover up adultery, he's got to cover up murder. When the story is told to David, if you drop down to verse 25, the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him. And the messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us. They came out to us in the field. We drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archer shot from the wall at your servants. Some of the king's servants are dead and Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Now David goes from being an adulterer and a murderer to being a rank hypocrite. David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, don't let this thing displease you for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. Well, you know, men die in battle. One dies as well as another. Don't worry about it. And so David becomes a disgusting, broken, twisted, darkened image of the man that he once was. You know, we always reap what we sow. In the beginning of your notes, I said that the cry of this generation is no one should reap what they sow. But you can't change reality. You can have your illusions. You can have, this is how I like to see it. This is how I like to think about it. It doesn't matter. Life is what it is. The world is what it is. You can have a Pollyanna idea and approach to the world, but you are going to get crushed by reality. Reality destroys illusions. People become disillusioned because they have illusions. I like to think of God this way. It doesn't matter. He is who he is. I like to think of the world in this way. Well, it doesn't matter. The world is what it is. It is a harsh, cruel, and brutal place. It is at the same time also very beautiful and very wonderful. And the creation that we have around us is such an uh, amazing and stunning. I never get tired of looking at just pictures of beautiful mountains and rivers and sunrises and sunsets and rainbows and all of those things. 
what a wonderful, wonderful world we live in, but it's only a broken, twisted, darkened reflection of what it once was and what it will be once again when God restores and remakes this world. You are going to be stunned out of your mind at the beauty that is going to surround you in the kingdom of heaven. Be preparing your heart and your soul. What if each one of us in the kingdom had a stature that reflected our spiritual growth? Some would be giants. Some would be midgets. Some would be babies. Are you ready for this? That's the way it's going to be. Everyone will know Scripture says that in that day the righteous will shine as the stars of the firmament forever. You ever look up at the night sky? What do you see? You see the stars. Here is a brilliant blazing star. Over here another bright and beautiful star. And then over here this tiny glimmer that you can barely see. You and I are going to perfectly reflect in heaven. Hey, we can fool each other. We can act so wise. We can act so mature. We can put on a front. No one will fool anyone when we stand in eternity. Because we will perfectly reflect our genuine spiritual growth. The loving kindness of God is marvelous in chapter 12. And again, I'm not going to go through the whole story. I know you're familiar with it. God sends the prophet Nathan to David. Prophet Nathan tells his parable. David doesn't realize that he is the topic, the subject. David passes sentence. The man that has done this thing will pay fourfold and he must die. What he doesn't realize is that he just passed sentence on himself. Jesus tells us in Matthew 12 and verse 37 that we will either be acquitted or condemned by our own words. When we stand before the Lord, when he evaluates our life, we will be the ones who pass sentence on ourselves. David did indeed pay fourfold for the sin he committed first. The child of Bathsheba will die. Second, his daughter Tamar will be raped by his son Amnon, chapter 13. Then Absalom will murder Amnon, chapter 13, verse 23 to 29. Finally, Absalom will revolt and be killed by Joab. The man that has done this thing shall pay fourfold. I like to picture what the look on David's face must have been when Nathan said, you are the man. Why didn't David die the sin unto death? Only one reason. Because as soon as Nathan said, you're the man, he stopped lying, he stopped deceiving, he brought himself back to reality. Reality had boxed him in, reality had pushed him against the wall, he had painted himself in the corner, there was only one way out, I have sinned. That's it, that's it, I have sinned against the Lord. And that open, honest, coming back to reality confession saved his life. Otherwise, he would have died. He was on his way. He was on the threshold of the sin unto death. God is so gracious and so merciful because in that moment, 
David was washed. David's confession uh, is recorded in his Psalms. Read Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 51. He put it out there before the whole world. He wanted the whole world to know what he had gone through, what the inner struggle had been during the time that he wasted away and allowed his inner man to decay and to rot for a year. Think of being a year out of fellowship with God. Think about going a year under divine condemnation. Think about a year with never an easy conscience. And as it continued to nibble away at the inner man, you and I are really what we are within. And that giant and that gem, that great reflection of what our Savior would be that David was a picture of now became a horrible mask and a terrible deception. He put it out there before the whole world. And don't forget Bathsheba. What happened with her? One of the things I find very interesting is that after the child died, you see David restored. After the child dies, it says, then David comforted his wife. David began then to minister to Bathsheba. David began to speak of the loving kindness of God. David began to remind her of his forgiveness and his faithfulness and to restore her having restored himself. And Bathsheba learned from what she had done and she wrote about it. You, have you read Bathsheba's recovery? I hope you have. She wrote to her son in the book of Proverbs who had the nickname Lemuel. His name was Solomon. People say that the Proverbs are Solomon's notes. They were essentially the things he was taught by his father. Every time he writes, my son, do not do this. My son, hear the words of your father. This is David speaking. The book of Proverbs is actually David's recovery instruction to his son Solomon. And then he allows the book to be closed out as Bathsheba writes and says, my son, remember the teaching of your mother. Remember her words. Wear them like a chain of gold around your neck. And then you know what she instructs him about? Nan's got a book about it right over there on the table. She instructs him about a virtuous woman. She became that virtuous woman. You know what David and Bathsheba's recovery... It drives me crazy when I hear preachers say, well, David was never the man he was before. No, he was a greater man than he was before because only when we're broken and rebuilt by God can we be at our best. 
It was after his sin with Bathsheba. It was after the murder of Uriah. It was after all of his hypocrisy that David rises back up so that later he is called in the Psalms, I think it's written by Asaph, I can't remember, the greatest of the kings of the earth. That was God's evaluation of David after all of this happened. Never think that you are the bird with a broken wing that'll never fly again. Never think that you are tarnished goods. Never think you'll never be what you ought to be because of some sin you've fallen into. You can be greater. Let God heal the wounds. Let God put you back together. Let him wash you and make you clean. Let him lift you up because your experience will become the lesson that you can teach someone else to save them from the pitfall that you've been in. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Let's move on. We've just got a few minutes. Psalm 100. <coughs> I want to get into gratitude versus greed. Mephibosheth and Ziba. Psalm 100, a song of praise for the Lord's faithfulness. Psalm of thanksgiving. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates downcast. Enter into his courts with groaning. Complain to him and blame him. Oh, I'm sorry. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endures to all generations. A psalm of gratitude. David changed the life of a young man named Mephibosheth. Turn with me to the ninth chapter. 2 Samuel, again, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story. If I took a week just to teach this story, I wouldn't have time. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Do you remember when they made their covenant? Do you remember when Jonathan said, even after I'm gone, let your loving kindness be shown to my household? David is being loyal. David's being faithful. David's keeping his word. And not just to Jonathan, but even the household of Saul. Is there anyone of the household of Saul? There was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. Ziba's the villain in this story. When they called him to David, the king said, are you Ziba? And he said, at your service. He's a hypocrite. He's a criminal. Then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul in whom I'm, uh, to whom I may show the kindness of God? By the way, I hope you realize you are an instrument in this world to show the loving kindness of God. Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan and he's lame in his feet. 
You have to go back to chapter four to find out what happened to this young man when he was five years old as the news reached the city that Saul and Jonathan and all the army were slaughtered on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. They feared that the Philistines were going to come and attack the city. And so the nurse picks this little boy, five years old. Think of five years of living in the palace, five years with a loving father, a man of sterling character like Jonathan. Five years of play with other children. Five years of just a wonderful life. And then one day the word comes down. Your grandfather is dead. Your father is dead. The army is slaughtered. The nurse picks him up and runs with him. And falls in her haste. Breaks his ankles. And they never mend properly. By the way, there was a guy around here. Any of you ever heard of a guy by the name of Tom Horn? I mentioned to you Bucky O'Neill who died in Cuba on San Juan Hill. His best friend was a guy named Tom Horn. Tom Horn was the chief of scouts. But there was a guy over him, and my mind blanks out right now. I'm trying to think of his name. Al Sieber. Thank you, Father. Al Sieber fought in the Civil War. Al Sieber got a bullet in his ankle. His ankle never mended. His ankle oozed infection the rest of his life. Al Sieber was the head of all the scouts. Tom Horn worked for him. And he was a magnificent scout, a tough fighter, but he couldn't walk because of his ankle. Here's Mephibosheth, crippled for life, lost his father, his grandfather, lost the position in his house, and lost his inheritance to a scoundrel by the name of Ziba, who appropriated everything that belonged to him. Ziba has to live in the house of a friend. Verse four, the king said, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Isn't it interesting, Lodabar? Don't say it. Don't say it, Lodabar. You don't say. King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, to Lodabar. Why isn't he living on his own estate? Why isn't he over his own inheritance? Ziba appropriated says, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, here is your servant. And David said to him, do not fear. I will surely show you the kindness for Jonathan, Jonathan, your father's sake. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you will eat bread at my table continually. The highest honor that could be given was to eat at the king's table. He bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? You ever felt like a dead dog? You know, in ancient Israel, a dog was a symbol of that which is unclean, that which is filthy. It's bad enough to be called a dog. To be a dead dog is even worse. His self-esteem, his self-worth, his identity in his own mind was nothing. And David's going to change all that. 
because David showed him honor and David showed him respect and David gave him an example. And Mephibosheth was thankful. Verse 9, the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants will work the land for him. Ziba just got demoted. By the way, if you ever promote yourself, God will demote you. You are not going to be allowed to rise above the position that he intends you to have. He will bring you down. You shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat, but Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Isn't it funny? Here is the rightful heir living in the house of a benefactor, and here is Ziba living like a king. Verse 12, Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba became servants of Mephibosheth. So here Mephibosheth and his little boy now become the recipients of the grace and the kindness and the mercy of King David. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, and he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. I'm going to throw out this challenge to you. Because you are going to run into people all the time and there are people right here that are crippled because of something that may not have been their fault at all. Maybe not crippled in body, crippled in heart, wounded in soul. Their sense of worth, their self-esteem, their sense of value has been shattered. And life does that to us all. That's a process that we all have to go through. If it hasn't happened yet, it will. Somewhere along the line in life, God allows us to be utterly and totally broken. And sometimes again and again. And sometimes it's our own doing. That's when it's really tough is when you realize you did it to yourself. But don't worry because it's all part of God's plan. Being broken is so that we can be healed. Being shattered is so that God can put you back together. And when he puts you back together, you'll be wiser, you'll be stronger, and like Mephibosheth, you may limp the rest of your life. Maybe not in body, again, but in soul. But here's what happened. As David falls into sin, who's there? Mephibosheth. As Absalom revolts against David, who's there? Mephibosheth. And we're going to pick up in the next hour and we're going to see how David made him the man that he became the greatest giant of the house of Saul, the greatest warrior of a warrior family, the greatest warrior of a warrior society because he, he became a warrior in his heart. We'll see it next time. Think about those who may be crippled around you. You may have the opportunity to heal them and help them walk again. Father, we thank you for your grace. Bless these words that we have studied. Uh, bless us as we continue in our next session to wrap things up. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for each one of these people that have taken the time and shown the interest to come out and hear your word. We ask your blessing on it all. In Jesus' name, amen.